Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Emily Bernstein from Eken School of Medicine at Mount Sinai on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD from the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories in 2003. You then moved on to do a postdoc at Rockefeller University. And in 2008, you then became assistant professor at Eiken School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where you are still today as a full professor. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yes, so thank you for having me, and I'm happy to be here today. Um, I think, you know, just as a child, I had a natural affinity, I think, as many scientists do. Um, I also had a love of the arts as well, but um, probably not as successful a career in, in, in painting as I was in science. But um, I think it really struck me as something that I could do for a career when I went to university. And... Um, I actually went to school in Canada, which is a little bit different than at least in the United States, um, where you have to sort of declare a major going in uh, to university before you start. And so that was sort of a clear uh, biology track for me um, to, to study uh, science, uh, you know, at already making that decision by the age of 18. Um, and I, I think really fell in love with uh, human genetics. That was one of the classes I took that was just so fascinating to me and understanding, um, you know, populations and uh, particularly in Quebec, where I was in school, there were many founder populations um, where there were these uh, genetic inherited disorders. Um, and I took also a graduate level class during university and uh, that was it. I was sort of hooked. Are you still painting? I'd like to say yes, but very rarely that happens. <laughs> so uh, coming to your science, that centers around, on the one hand, uh, histone variants and the role of their post-translation modifications in cancer and stem cell development. And on the other hand, the role of polycom proteins in stem cells and disease. Um, I want to start with your work on macro H2A. I think this work started with a publication in 2008. Um, there you investigated the role of phosphorylated macro H2A on the inactive X. Um, could you briefly introduce uh, macro-H2A? Absolutely. So this is one of our favorite histone variants. And um, I think it's quite unique. It's, it's a very, very large histone. Uh, it has a histone domain, as many of the histones, or all the histones do. But it has um, an unusual tripartite structure where it has a linker domain that's very flexible, looks very much like a histone tail. It's quite long. Um, but then it's followed at the C-terminus by what we call the macro domain, which is a non-histone domain. So it's almost sort of like a bifunctional molecule in that it does get incorporated into the nucleosome. It has a histone fold and a tail, but it has this big sort of globular domain lopped onto it. And, um, we always thought it was sort of a fascinating histone variant. What is the difference then to like the usual histones, I mean, not the usual, but the one everybody is interested in, like the H3 and H4s? 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it, the H2A family is quite diverse. It's the most diverse um, of the histone variant families. Um, you know, as I said, it does sit in the nucleosome, so it gets incorporated and it, you know behaves structurally in the H2A-like part, very much like canonical H2A in its structure. There are differences. Um, it's been a, an, an enigmatic um, histone variant for us and for many in the field as we don't fully understand in vivo uh, what it is doing, but it's thought to be involved at least in large part uh, in transcriptional repression. Yeah, maybe we can uh, touch uh, some things that you did. Um, so coming to your 2008 paper, um, yeah, where you investigated the role of the macrophage tray on the inactive X, um, what did you do there and what did you find? Yeah, so that so that was a really um, fun time uh, scientifically, and I have to say, I was definitely inspired by many scientists, uh, particularly you know Edith Hurd and others who were studying the inactive X chromosome. It was a a pretty amazing piece of heterochromatin that you could watch forming in the dish. So you could take embryonic stem cells um, and differentiate them, and within a few you know days, see this formation of heterochromatin. It's a big chunk of it. And it's a really fascinating system. Uh, so during my postdoc years, I was very interested in how heterochromatin forms and that involved things like polycomb and macro H2A. And so using the inactive X as a model system, um, we thought we could understand a bit more about how macro H2A works. And so um, I was in David Alice's lab at the time, and um, during that time frame, there was a very big push to discover new post-translational modifications and understand who bound them, who were the reader proteins, who were the enzymes. Um, but we really didn't know much about histone variant post-translational modifications, um, particularly for macro H2A. We didn't know any. So that paper was really um, a, a biochemical and mass spec-based approach to identify novel post-translational modifications of macro H2A. And we actually found a couple of phosphorylation sites within the linker. Um, and sort of to our surprise, that phosphorylated form um, was actually excluded from heterochromatin. And it seemed to be playing not a role at the inactive X chromosome, um, but at other places. So, um, you know, we worked together with, and Edith Hurd was on that paper and others um, to try and understand what this phosphorylation was doing. Did you at one point find what is uh, what the phosphorylation is doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it does seem to be a cell cycle regulated phosphorylation. Um, you know, one of the things that we did was um, we were fortunate to be able to make an antibody. That's to always that's always phosphorylation. good. <laughs> yes, it and, and if you know, you know, the field of making histone modification antibodies, which I'm sure you do, um, it's not always easy. So um, we tried a bunch of sites actually, and, and we found one that worked quite well. And so we were able to work that up through immunofluorescence and, you know, Western blotting. Um, and ideally we, you know, at some point like to chip seek it and see where it's sitting in the genome. Uh, you didn't, did you do that already? Or um, is this something you are planning? I'm embarrassed to say we have not done it yet. <laughs> so is this phosphorylation a cause or consequence? So is it, um, so is it, Yeah, regulatory for um, putting the macro H2A to the inactive X, or is it just that it comes with it? No, I mean, it It actually seems to be excluded from it. Okay. Um, so we think there's a subpop, we think there's a subpopulation of macro H2A that's doing something else. 
And um, this has been found also by others. Um, it's not, macroHCA is not always transcriptionally repressive. There's a, a subfraction of it that seems to be important for gene activation. Um, so we wonder if the phosphorylation may, may somehow play a role in that. Okay. So then later on, and I guess that was work that was already done in your own lab, um, you looked at the role of macroHCA in melanoma. So what did you find there about the role of this um, histone um, in this type of cancer? Yeah, so this was um, a real switch. So from, you know, sort of hard hardcore biochemistry and cell biology to cancer biology. Um, we got interested in melanoma because macro-H2A is, um, it's upregulated and it's enriched in uh, senescent cells. Um, and so I was looking for a model system in cancer that we could study senescence. And sort of the obvious choice was um, the moles on our skin or nevi which are um, characterized as senescent melanocytes. You know, these moles can sit on the body for, you know, a lifetime of an individual and they don't proliferate. So um, I thought that was a neat system and also skin is quite accessible. Um, so we, you know, can easily get moles and, and some primary melanoma tissue to actually look at these things. So that's sort of how we got to melanoma. Um, and in that study, we basically characterized um, a bunch of histone variants um, of the H2A family, but it turned out that macro H2A seemed to be dramatically reduced during the process of melanoma progression. Um, and that was quite exciting for us because, um, you know, as chromatin biologists, and at that time, I think the role of histone variants in cancer was, you know, highly underappreciated or not really even recognized. Um, And so we, we um, were very fortunate. We had a bunch of wonderful students in the lab at the time, um, one of which was a medical student and was our liaison to the derma dermatology and dermatopathology departments. And so we looked at human patient samples and we could actually validate it there. Um, and so, yeah, we went on to characterize, um, you know, with ADVAC experiments and knockout experiments that it's not just a passenger event, it actually plays an active role in progression. Yeah, so it it's, yeah, so if you could somehow influence a macro H2A, this would help or pave a way for the cure of cancer? I mean, I'd like to say so, but we, we know it's quite difficult. Yes. Um, in fact, you know, how do we get more macro H2A into a cell that's lost it? Um, And we think about this a lot, you know, how to regulate histone variants and, um, you know, some of them are oncogenic, some of them are tumor suppressive. Um, it's hard to target a histone in general, just because of their structure and the way they assemble. And, um, but we think a lot about how we could, if we understand, um, I think you were getting at this a little bit before, how they're deposited into chromatin and we understand, you know, the chaperones that do that, maybe we can manipulate those. Uh, to affect uh, histone variant deposition. Although there's always a caveat with that, which is, you know, the normal cells in the body, which also depend on these variants. So it is a, it's a bit tricky, but we're, these are things we're thinking about. Yeah, the, this also leads to my next question, uh, because in 2012, you worked on ATRX, and uh, this would be one of the chaperones uh, for macroH2A and its function on uh, macroH2A. So what is ATRX and what is its exact function? So again, another uh, mysterious and complicated molecule. Um, so ATRX is a super interesting uh, chromatin remodeler. 
that was identified in a, a um, an alpha thalassemia um, intellectual disability disorder uh, to have mutations. Um, and so uh, it has many roles. It has roles in gene regulation. It has roles in chromatin structure. It has roles in DNA methylation. And it also binds to a protein called DAX that uh, deposits histone H3.3 into chromatin. So it has yeah, many roles. Uh, there's also, you know, some suggestions um, in DNA damage and so I think it's very much context dependent, um, but we had identified as an interactive pro interacting protein uh, with macro H2A through mass spectrometry. And that's how we initially got interested in ATRX uh, in the lab in the first place. Yeah, you um, looked at the function of ATRX in the context of melanoma and also H2A Z.2. <laughs> I mean, those mm -hmm. those names always get longer. Um, so are they connect connected somehow? Or what did you find about those two in, in melanoma? Yeah, I think um, the H2AZ story is sort of a separate um, story that evolved out of the melanoma work uh, that I told you about earlier on macro H2A. So when we had screened patient samples, Uh, and cell lines, we had found that while macro H2A was lost, the opposite was true for H2AZ, and that H2AZ actually increased its levels in melanoma. Um, so H2AZ is not functionally linked uh, to macro H2A in any way, uh, sorry, yeah, to H2A, but also to ATRX in any way that we know of. Um, but H2AZ in particular, again, another H2A variant has been implicated in um, many cancers as being upregulated um, in hormone-driven cancers, breast and prostate. Uh, we found it was upregulated in melanoma, but I think what was sort of interesting, just to stick with the melanoma theme uh, for a moment, what was interesting about that was that there are two isoforms of H2AZ, uh, the point one and the point two, And um, most people in the field were really studying the, the Z1 isoform, and very little was known about Z2, um, had only sort of been recognized some, you know, very recently. So uh, we dissected those two isoforms to see if there was a difference, uh, a functional difference, at least in melanoma. And we're learning from our work and others in the field that it seems like the neural crest lineage is somehow very dependent on H2AZ2, uh, whereas maybe other lineages are not as uh, dependent. So um, we found an important role for Z2 uh, in particular, and we're, we're still following that up in, in other ways, coming back to the chaperones, for example, that regulate H2AZ deposition. Is this up here regulation in melanoma of H2AZ due to also the effect of H2AZ in uh, DNA damage uh, or DNA repair? Or is this uh, different? It's a good question. Um, you know, there are some reports of H2AZ uh, in different contexts, particularly throughout the cell cycle. Um, you know, we saw also in patient samples that H2AZ levels were increased. Um, it may be a function of cell cycle and proliferating cells. Um, But it's it's sort of unclear. Uh, I don't I don't think we have any clear link to DNA damage, at least in in melanoma. Okay. And the ATRX, um, what did you find about ATRX in melanoma? 
Yeah. So after we found um, this interaction between macro H2A um, and HRX, um, we were very interested and in also at the time, a medical student who was very interested in looking at um, human melanoma patient samples to see what HRX levels look like. And so it's been generally thought uh, to be tumor suppressive. So it's often lost in tumors. Again, like macro H2A, um, ATRX often tends to be lost. Um, and we're learning that, you know, across many different cancers now, um, particularly in the pediatric setting, but also in adult tumors. And um, we saw very similar things in melanoma. Um, so that was a sort of short report uh, showing that ATRX levels were decreased in melanoma progression. So you said that it's a chromatin remodeler, but then also that it's a histone chaperone um, and it binds to H3, uh, H3.3, I guess. Um, so yes. is it like yeah. both or how, how, how does it, how does it <laughs> Sorry, work? Sorry, <laughs> you know what? You caught me there. It's true. Um, I, I think of it more as a chromatin remodeler, has the ATPase. Um, but because it binds DAX, people sort of tend to lump the ATRX DAX complex as a histone, histone chaperone complex. But it really is the DAX part of that complex that is depositing 3.3. It's the molecule that makes contacts with 3.3. So I think ATRX helps DAX to know where to go in the genome. Um, but when I sort of talk about it in the context that, that we work on it. It's not always in the context of histone chaperone activity. So I think of it more as a, a remodeler. Okay. So the histone variant macro H2A occupies large repressive domains throughout the genome. Um, however, mechanisms underlying its precise deposition are not really understood. Um, you investigated this process. Uh, what did you find there? Yeah, this has been a long-standing question. Um, You know, we and others for many years, you know, some of the best biochemists in the world, and I'm certainly not claiming to be one, but we all, uh, you know, people that have studied these interactions, right, um, you know, growing buckets and buckets and liters and liters of cells to find the, the histone chaperone, uh, you know, through mass spectrometry have really yielded nothing for macro H2A. And, um, you know, many of us have spoken about this. In fact, we were at a meeting in Munich not so long ago, maybe about four years ago, where we all sort of came to the conclusion that, you know, maybe it's using chaperones that H2A uses and it doesn't have its own dedicated uh, chaperone. Um, but I think we're learning that there's context dependency. So, um, you know, it may require things um, like ATRX actually to negatively regulate its deposition. So we actually find that um, we reported this in uh, Nature Structural Molecular Biology a few years ago that um, in a, a cell that has no macro H2A at all, so it's a complete knockout. This is from uh, isolated from mice that are deficient for all macro H2As. Um, and we add back macro and look very closely at a a time scale that's in the, the order of you know, hours, uh, we can see that macro H2A actually gets sort of incorporated everywhere in the genome, but over time it gets kicked out. Um, or you know, we think about it as a negative regulation. We, in that paper, we called it pruning, whereby it sort of goes in everywhere and then in actively transcribed regions, it seems to be removed. Um, so I do think there's a negative regulation to macro H2A deposition, but there are also some Uh, new chaperones that have been identified 
um, that may have specific, you know, context-dependent deposition of, of macroH2a. So there's much to be still learned about this. I now want to switch gears a little bit and come to the polycomb group proteins. Um, the first publication from you on this topic is from 2006 in Molecular Cell Biology. There you investigated mouse polycomb proteins, their binding to chromatin and their localization in different chromatin compartments. Uh, what did you find there about mouse polycomb proteins? Yeah, so um, this was also sort of an era. Um, this was my postdoc work, I think you're referring to. Um, where we were, you know, very interested in the reader proteins and, and the domains that bound uh, the histone modifications. And I was very interested in the polycomb family, again, coming from the perspective of, you know, heterochromatin um, and the inactive X chromosome, um, where we could see localization of these polycomb factors. But, you know, again, it was very unclear uh, which polycomb proteins people were, were um, sort of working with and defining uh, in these PRC1 complexes or the polycomb repressive one complexes. And it turns out that there's five, we we're talking about polycomb now, the actual polycomb protein that was identified in fly, there's one and there's five homologs uh, in mammalian cells. So that's CBX2, 4, 6, and 8, 7, and 8. Um, and so kind of boggled my mind. Why do we need five of these uh, chromodomain containing polycomb proteins? And, you know, some people would do an IP and mass spec and pull out CBX2 and somebody else would do a, a different subunit and pull out CBX4. And, uh, you know, we wanted to really, uh, there was a graduate student, Beth Duncan at the time working together uh, with us where, you know, we really wanted to understand the, is there specificity um, what's the difference between these these five polycomb members? And so, um, again, we used biochemistry and um, tried to define their their ability to bind histone modifications. Yeah. So two of these CBX proteins you're focusing on were seven and eight. Um, so maybe hmm. you can tell us something about those two. Yeah, seven uh, is very interesting. Um, from at least from in vitro studies, it seemed to have the most affinity uh, to bind K27 ME3. Of course, that's in vitro. Um, but um, we also noted that it was enriched in embryonic stem cells. Um, and so that comes back to, you know, maybe there are some ubiquitously expressed uh, polycomb proteins and there are others that have specific functions. Um, so our group together uh, with Jesus Gill, um, And at the same time, Luciano de Croce's group also had a very similar paper showing that it was the main polycomb found in embryonic stem cells and that as you differentiate, you switch to a different uh, polycomb member. And so that really helped us to understand, um, at least in the context of seven, that um, you know, this is a very specific polycomb member in uh, the embryonic stem cell state. And when it comes to eight? <laughs> oh, sorry, I forgot about eight. Yeah, so eight's part of the switch. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, in more differentiated cells, you tend to see more of the, the other uh, polycomb members. But what's interesting um, and, and actually came out of another uh, project in the lab is that CBX8 tends to be upregulated in a variety of cancers. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so we actually um, studied it in the context of um, the mammary gland and, and breast cancer. And what did you find there? I mean, tumor uh, cancer is always interesting, right? Yeah, so um, we we weren't necessarily uh, going after CBX8 in this context. Um, a student at the time, Jay Chung, had done a screen uh, in the mammosphere context of, of uh, these were mouse mammary carcinoma cells. Um, and he'd grown them in 3D spheroid um, conditions, uh, enriching for more like STEMI populations of the mammary gland. And um, we had done an SHRNA screen against the epigenome at the time. So we targeted, uh, I don't remember the number, but something on the order of 150 or so um, factors that are important in chromatin. So it was a focused SHRNA screen. And one of our top hits from that screen was actually CBX8. And so that was that was a, a good moment for us because we we had tools and we uh, we knew a lot about that protein. So um um, you know, we showed that cells uh, need CBX8 for survival, um, and we showed that it, it's, at least in the, this context, um, it's important for notch sigla- signaling in breast cancer. So is that something you're working on right now, or what are your plans for, let's say, the next five years? I have to say, I think, um, you know, we kind of go where things take us a little bit. Um, I'm not um, a stickler that we have to, you know, keep studying. And I think that's how we learn. And I'm always excited to do new things. Um, Our work, I would say right now in the lab is very much focused on uh, the role of chromatin remodeling mutations in cancer. Um, And I think a bit, you know, comes from the people who join the lab and who, you know, have questions they want to answer. And so people, who've joined in recent years are very interested in the role of chromatin remodeling mutations and their effects on the epigenome. So we're studying that in the context now of melanoma um, and also in neuroblastoma. Okay. So your role as a mentor is not to um, set so many rules or so many tight uh, um, paths on your uh, postdocs and PhD students, but let them write free and follow their own thoughts? Absolutely. Um, I think you know, there's a an element of scientific freedom that, of course, um, is important and people are uh, excited about their projects. Um, and I think that, um, you know, it's, it's not my place to sort of force somebody to work on something. I think it's a, a growth process. And um, sometimes, you know, a student will come in and think they want to do one thing. And you know, after a year or so, it's not necessarily going in the right direction. And so we have to make a call and, um, you know, think about something else. But I do think it's important people are excited about what they're doing and, and driven to answer questions that um, interest them. To finish off this in- interview, I have two more general questions. And the first one, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Yes. Who doesn't? <laughs> is there an example for that? Who doesn't? Sorry? Is there an example for that? Oh, an example. Yes. Um, so I think the most, you know, in the forefront of my mind is the connection between, um, you know, heterochromatin binding proteins and RNA. Um, so I came from my PhD working on RNA interference and small RNAs. 
And um, we had learned uh, a lot about the RNAi machinery, but as I was sort of finishing my graduate work, um, a lot of studies from yeast and, and plants had shown that um, some of these RNAi molecules were actually uh, associated with heterochromatin complexes. Um, and I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe these small RNAs are also helping to guide chromatin structural changes in the human genome. So I set out in my postdoc, and that's in part why I joined Dave's lab is because I knew a lot about RNA biology, but I really didn't know that much about chromatin biology and I wanted to learn. Um, so my, my probably first year and a half in Dave's lab was spent trying to look for small RNAs with various uh, heterochromatin binding proteins, such as polycombs. And um, after a lot of work um, and sort of hitting a wall, um, I realized it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. Um, and, you know, we now know that it's not something that happens in human cells that um, heterochromatin proteins do bind RNA. And we showed that, but it's not the RNA from uh, small interfering RNAs from RNAi. There, there are different types of RNAs now more globally classified as link RNAs uh, that others had defined. So, um, you know, I think it's important to follow an idea and, you know, you have to at some point make a call that it's, it's not working and, and refocus and redirect. So in the last 30 minutes now, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think overall, um, you know, I'm still very excited about the role of histone variants in cancer. I think we still have a lot to learn. Um, I'm excited by the fact that we were able to find uh, a role for macro-H2A in, in cancer. Um, and I think some of the discoveries since then, for example, you know, mutations, actual mutations in histone variants like the H3.3 mutations have really brought this area of research to light. Um, so I sort of joke that the geneticists have finally taken the epigeneticists seriously um, because, uh, you know, these histones are mutated. Um, in terms of things that I missed, um, you know, as I said, we're very excited about chromatin remodeling mutations. And I think, um, you know, we're actively working on this, particularly in the SWISNF uh, and ATRX space, trying to understand Uh, how these remodelers uh, affect the epigenome and, and drive cancer. And so what I'm most excited about there is um, potentially um, having the, the impact on patients where uh, in the context of neuroblastoma, we found that these chromatin remodeling mutant neuroblastomas are in fact sensitive to EZH2 inhibition. And that's something we're working with uh, an international team now uh, of oncologists um, to try and get clinical trials going for this in combination with other therapies. That sounds very exciting. So thank you, Emily, for your time and for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. 
We'd love to hear from you. So please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.